Don't you just love that very simple song that we just sang? In moments like these, I love you, Lord. What a great, great blessing. Uh, congratulations, graduates. Again, we are so proud of you. So proud to have gotten to know you. Amy and her family, of course, have been here for a long, long time. Uh, Walker and his family have been here since early 2019. And uh, both of these families have been a huge blessing uh, to our church family as well. Love and appreciate uh, Jim's thoughts as we gathered around the table, spoken as a father of a graduate, but spoken also as uh, a sinner, forgiven, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, brother. And of course, Will, our other dad today, will be sharing uh, our closing prayer uh, this morning. And so looking forward to that as well. Uh, question, ever wish you were a graduating high school senior? Do you, ever, do you ever wish that? Some of us will say, no way, Jose, been there, done that, got the shirt, not going to go back there. And that's okay. Some kind of wistfully, nostalgically uh, remember those wonderful days of junior high and high school and especially uh, graduating from high school. And so um, in light of that, I thought I would share a couple of things with you. Um, first of all, these are a couple of pictures of not-so-recent <clears throat> graduates. Um, yes, that is Bill, uh, Alan, and uh, Joyce Long. Um, one of those two has changed a lot through the years. The other one, not so much, um, as you can tell. I can tell you that when we went to our 10-year high school reunion at South San Antonio High School, uh, I got most changed. In fact, uh, Joyce and I had been together, uh, known each other as friends since seventh grade, and a lot of the kids that we graduated with had been together since seventh grade or earlier. She graduated with some friends from her elementary school days, as did I. And so the word on the street at the uh, high school reunion, our 10-year reunion, was, who is Joyce with and what happened to Bill? Did did he die? Did they get divorced? What, what happened? And then they found out, nope, that's really Bill. And, you know, they didn't, uh, they didn't tell me that, uh, about the most changed award, but I've just assumed ever since 1985 that it was most changed for the better. <clears throat> and so I'm going to go with that, and uh, there you go. But another little insight into Bill and Joyce is this, and this is what is on the back of those two uh, pictures, our uh, actual signatures on the back. Now, you can tell a lot about Bill and Joyce just looking at, at, at that. Um, and so, uh, you know, we think about those high school days, and I hope that you think of them fondly. And I wish the best, of course, for Amy and for Walker and for others uh, that have graduated from here, will graduate uh, from here. And it's a great, great memory and a great, great uh, blessing. We want our graduates and all of us to be committed to living the good life. But what exactly does that look like? So I want to share a few thoughts uh, today on this Senior Sunday about living the good life. First of all, living the good life is not what you thought it was. We're going to be in the third chapter of Titus today, so click over there or turn there in your Bible, and we'll be looking at several verses, this great, great passage uh, from Titus 
chapter 3, very similar to other passages such as Ephesians 2 and uh, Colossians 2 and others that we'll mention along the way. But we'll be here in Titus chapter 3. First of all, reading verse 3, living the good life is not what you thought it was. And I think that's true of all of us. Every single one of us could make that statement. Titus 3 verse 3. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now, maybe all of the specifics there aren't exactly true with the life that you lived uh, before Christ, but you get the gist, right? We've all experienced this time when we acted selfishly, and that's really what this is talking about, when we had ourselves on the throne of our hearts rather than our God. And so this is how we were, and this is how we acted. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That probably describes every single person in here at one time in our lives or another. That's how we were. That's how we acted. That's how we lived. Why? Because we thought living that way would bring us the good life. That's what we thought. But living the good life is not what we thought that it was. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Strong words. And perhaps if that's stronger than how you remember uh, your pre-Christian days, um, then it may also be that uh, you hear that saying, talking about human insecurity, talking about how we lived before Christ, trying to find a way to convince ourselves that we were better, that we were better than the people around us, that we were better than our enemies, that we were even better than our friends. Because we had this inner insecurity that just would not let us go. And there was that inner sense of yearning for security, for completeness, for maturity, for joy. That we just couldn't find. That's how we were. Ephesians 2 talks about it in very similar ways, saying we were dead in our sins before Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, there's a list kind of like this in verses 9 and 10, talking about all kinds of different uh, uh, sins that we succumb to trying to find the good life trying to find that happiness, that joy, that security that we did not feel. And so we were living this way, trying to find it and trying to feel it. Paul is very specific at the beginning of verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, this is how some of you were, as he has announced this list of sins. We read it also in Galatians 5 when he talks about the deeds or works of the flesh. We lived that way because we thought that's how we could find the good life. That's how we could find security. That's how we could find joy. That's how we could find meaning and purpose. That's that's how we could feel good about ourselves because we didn't. 
and we couldn't. And what those of us who have turned to Christ, as Jim shared around the table, what, what those of us who have found there in those waters of baptistry is the ability to be raised to live that new life. A life that is good. A life that is filled with joy rather than sadness. A life that is filled with security rather than insecurity. A life that is filled with contentment rather than an an inner sense of never being able to find what we're actually looking for. At one time, Paul tells the Titus, we too were this way. We were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. This is how we lived. But what we found is that living the good life is not what we thought it was. And so that leads us to the next part of this great passage. Living the good life is possible only through Jesus. Those of us that have turned to the Lord have have learned that. Recently, our uh, adult Bible classes uh, had a couple of lessons on the book of Ecclesiastes, and I think this is exactly the point in that very frustrating, very challenging study of the book of Ecclesiastes because it is the wise man walking us through his journey doing exactly what these two points tell us trying to find the good life by succumbing to all of these pleasures and passions and foolish living, realizing that there's, there's nothing there. It's empty, and it only adds to our feeling of emptiness. And then turning to God, turning to the fear of the Lord, the worship of God, that, that sense of holding God in the highest place in our, of our lives, holding Him in the highest sense of reverence, that we have for anyone, being willing to follow that up with an obedient life. Living the good life is not what you thought it was. Living the good life is possible only through Jesus. And so this passage continues in verse 4, but thankfully there's a verse 4. Don't you feel that? (laughs) Verse 3 is not the end of the story. Sadly, it is for some. Sadly, for some, they never get to verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. There are two things that are spoken about in these verses, I believe. One is the incredible grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The way Ephesians 2 puts it, when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive. Through Jesus Christ, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's the second part. What Titus 3 and Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, what they all have in common, Galatians 6, all of those have this in common. It speaks about us when left to ourselves, we are dead in our sins. 
And then it shares the gospel, which is the good news, which is simply this. But God didn't leave us there. He gave us his will. He created us. He gave us his his love in the creation around us. And we returned that with a life of sinful pleasures with ourselves on on the throne of our hearts. Condemned to death for eternity and separation from God. And if we got what we deserved, if that was the end of the story, then God would have maintained his justice. Everything would have been as it should be. But everything would not have been as God wanted it to be. He created us to be in relationship with us. And he refused to let our sinfulness be the end of the story. And so verse 4 begins with, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. It is remarkable in this passage and in the other passages on your outline that that is clear. That is the clear message that there is nothing that we could do to save ourselves. Left to ourselves, we were dead in our sins. Had God not acted, that would have been the end. The good news of the gospel is God acted. God refused to let us receive what we deserve. He refused. And he knew that it would cause it would cost a great price to make that happen and that is the life of his son. And God was willing to pay that price. Jesus Christ the son of God was willing To pay that price. But it speaks about a response of faith. The gospel is that Jesus came and lived and died for us. That that tomb is empty. As Jim shared. But there is a response to that gospel. There is a response of faith. And that's what we read beginning in the middle of verse uh, verse 5. He saved us. Through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it harkens back to that great statement that Jesus makes in John 3 as he's interacting with Nicodemus, the leader of the Jews. When he says, Nicodemus, you, even you, must be born again of water and spirit. And that's what this verse goes back to. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yes, God saved us by his grace and his mercy, but there is also a response of faith that we are called upon to do in response to that great gospel, to that good, good news. And that is to hear that call, that we are incomplete that we are condemned, that we are sinners worthy of death, and yet God acted and saved us through the death and burial and resurrection of his son. And now there is an answer to the question that's asked throughout the book of Acts, what must I do to be saved? How do I relinquish control of my life and surrender all, as we'll sing in a few moments? How do I do that? It's through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. It's 
by being born again of water and the Spirit. It's by turning away from our life of sin and changing. Going from verse 3 to verse 4 of Titus 3. That's called repent. Repenting. It's confessing that penitence that is based on our firm belief in this gospel that Jesus is the living Son of God. And it is by being baptized into Jesus Christ, by being buried with him through baptism into death, as Romans 6 says, as Colossians 2 says, and being raised to live a new life, as we'll read about in just a moment. Just as Galen shared that great verse in John chapter 3, a little bit further down from that beginning of the discussion between Jesus and Nicodemus, he has that great statement, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that's the gospel, that whoever would believe in him, that's the response of faith, would not die but have everlasting life. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Living the good life is not what you thought it was. It is being justified by His grace, as Titus 3 verse 7 says, so that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. We go from hopeless to hope. And not because of anything we've done, not because of any good that we've accomplished. When left to ourselves, there is no hope. But it's because God acted and he saved us and he sent his son. And now we have responded in faith and we have said, I recognize I can't save myself. I throw myself to the mercy of my God. And I announce to the world that I believe that I repent, that I am baptized to receive that washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Living the good life is possible only through Jesus, but still the story hasn't ended. There's one more verse. Living the good life is doing what is good. Living the good life is doing what is good. And that's how this passage ends in Titus 3, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, Paul writing to the young preacher Titus. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You see, the story doesn't end with my sin. And it doesn't end with your sin. Jesus comes and lives and dies. And those words are true in Titus 3. He saved us. The story doesn't end with my response of faith. With receiving that washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit in Christian baptism. Even that is not the end of the story. Why? Because we are raised to live a new life. That's what Colossians 2 says. That's what Romans 6 says. That's what so many of those other passages say that call us to be that new creature, that new creation, to have that new identity that Tucker talked about a couple of weeks ago. 
That's where the story ends. The story ends with our continued life that has been changed forever. That is committed to doing what is good, not doing what is selfish. That is committed to trusting in the Lord, not trusting in myself. That is committed to serving and helping others. Living the good life is doing what is good. And so Paul writes to Titus and he tells him, I want you to stress these things so that everyone who is trusted in God realizes that it doesn't end there because it doesn't end with you and it doesn't end with me. It's getting that word out, as Galen shared, so that others will hear of this message and they too will believe, they too will repent, they too will confess, and they too will be washed with rebirth and renewal through the Holy Spirit in baptism. And why would they do that? Because they see something in you and they see something in me. And that something is simply this, doing what is good. Doing what is good. Stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The doer of the good and the ones who observe, the ones who are helped and receive that help, but also the ones who see an example of someone living a life devoted to Jesus Christ. Perfect? Far from it. Sinless? Absolutely not. Faithful? Yes. Humbly, gratefully, thankfully, faithfully serving the Lord by doing what is good. These other passages say the same thing. Ephesians 2 ends that passage in verse 10 by saying, We are God's workmanship, God's creation, created in Christ Jesus to do exactly this, what is good. Galatians 5 goes from the works of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, as you know, to what? The fruit of the Spirit. That's how we live. That's how we do what is good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of those living the fruit of the Spirit. Doing what is good. Colossians 3 verse 17. Puts it so beautifully, so perfectly. When it says everything that we say and everything that we do is done to honor God. It's done to His glory. It's done for the sake of others. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Peter reaffirms in 1 Peter 2. People see these things. And they glorify God because of how we live. And how we live is because of Jesus Christ. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 8 says, The one who gets wisdom loves life. That's how we live the good life. By getting that wisdom, serving God, fearing God, loving God, obeying God that the book of Proverbs talks about. There's an article I saw recently entitled, God, Grades, and Graduation. It's from a 20, uh, an article that was written earlier this year based on a book, reviewing a book actually, a uh, Wall Street Journal article that's based on this book review of a book entitled God, Grades, and Graduation. And the article asks, what kind of child does well in school? 
The answer is hardly surprising. One who has respect for authority, an ability to get along with fellow students, a stable family, exposure to responsible adults, and a feeling of hope. Does that sound like any place you're familiar with? Where would young people get those things? Not in society. For many, sadly, not even in their home. They get it here. They get it in church. They grow up around that. And they learn it. The article goes on to ask this. What if there were one particular element in a child's experience that could foster such characteristics in everyone, regardless of socioeconomic status? In God, God, grades, and graduation, Alana Horwitz suggests that religion can play such a role. Want your kids to do better in school? Church might be the answer, according to this study conducted by the University of Notre Dame. The article in Wall Street Journal is uh, based on that book, God, Grades, and Graduation, and suggests that religion can play a critical role for success. According to the study, youth who remain active in religious communities and who have adopted their family's faith as their own are likely to have an academic advantage because religion and schools are complementary institutions. In particular, adolescents who thrive in one institution are likely to thrive in the other. Among the survey's participants, the probability of getting grades of all or mostly A's was about 10% higher for students involved in church. According to Professor Horowitz of Tulane, a religious foundation can actually overcome challenges associated with growing up in lower socioeconomic circumstances. And don't we all know that? We read those thoughts and we're encouraged because they're coming from a secular person, from a secular institution of higher education, in a secular study. We get that. This is not a group of church people that said, let's come up with some stats that can help our cause. It's not that at all. But what this secular study is demonstrating is something we all know already. And that's why it's so important, as Galen shared, that we connect with the church, that we're involved with the church, that we're active with the church for the sake not just of our own children, but of all of our children. Because you see, Amy and Walker don't just belong to the Christians and the soups. They are our kids. And I want you to know that this is your home church. The kids that grow up here, the kids that graduate from here, you may in your life live all kinds of different places and have all kinds of different experiences and have a number of church homes. And that's great. But you will have one home church, and that's this one. And what that means is simply this. No matter how far away you get, no matter how far away you go, no matter what you do, no matter where you are, In your life, you can come home. You can come home to your home church. You will be loved. And you will be helped. And you will be challenged to live according to the word and will of God. And there's an advantage to that that other kids outside of the church, don't have. 
And it's nice to hear (laughs) that someone in the world actually recognizes that from time to time. But that's not why we do it. We do it because we know it's the truth. Whether you're a high school senior about to graduate or any of the rest of us, even secular research shows that staying connected with your church family and your Savior can help you live the good life. Living the good life is not what we thought it was. Living the good life is possible only through Jesus Christ. Living the good life is doing what is good. Think for a moment of how you would live this week if you had the clean slate of a high school graduate. And I know, I know, I know, you remember when you were a high school graduate, you would probably look at me and say, Bill, I didn't exactly have a clean slate at 18 years old. Okay, I get that. I understand. Right there with you. But generally speaking, (laughs) relatively speaking, Think for a moment of how you would live this week if you had the clean slate of a high school graduate with all of your life in front of you. Here's a little secret. You do. You do have that clean slate. Why is that? Because of everything we've read today from Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. Because when we tried it our way, we realized it didn't work. And we realized the good life could not be found there. That the good life can be found only in Jesus Christ. And we accepted it. And we accepted every day of our lives. And every day, every moment, that slate is wiped clean. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, not sinless, faultless. To stand before the throne on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Use your clean slate today and every day to live the good life, doing good through Jesus Christ, your Savior and your Lord. If you are ready to surrender all to Christ today, we'd love to help you do that. Come as we stand and sing this great hymn.